Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Lenny Mendoza. I'm a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, and I'm excited to be moderating today's program. I'm pleased today to be joined by Christopher Leonard, Chris, business reporter and author of the new book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and Bloomberg Businessweek, and his previous book, Cokeland, was a New York Times bestseller. If you asked most people what forces led to today's unprecedented income inequality and financial crisis, few would say the Federal Reserve. In the Lords of Easy Money, Chris dives into this mysterious institution. He takes us through the recent history of a new tool of the Federal Reserve, quantitative easing, and how, is it ex- how it has exacerbated the wealth gap we see today. We're going to be talking a lot about a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask, answer your questions too, or at least ask them. We'll let Chris answer them. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. So Chris Leonard, thanks for joining us virtually. Yeah, thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. Well, look forward to the conversation. Sorry we can't do it in person. We'll do that again soon, too, I'm sure. Um, Hopefully, I'm yeah. Glad you could join us. So, um, Chris, before we get into the um, the specifics of the book and, and your thoughts on quantitative easing and where we are, why don't you tell us a little bit about your kind of story that got you to wanting to write this book? Why a book about uh, Federal Reserve and, and monetary policy and the economy? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it honestly happened in, in large part by accident. I sort of stumbled into this story when I was actually reporting Cokeland, and, and this was back in 2016. And, you know, one of the great privileges and joys of being a reporter is that you get to meet all different kinds of people from all different walks of life. And one of the people I met reporting Cokeland is a guy who talked to me on background. Just he, he just wanted to talk anonymously. Really, really bright guy. And he was one of these financial trader types, um, you know, who, who ran a hedge fund. And we talked for a while. And then he really wanted to turn the conversation to what he was seeing in asset markets. And he spent hours walking me through what he was seeing and describing to me how the Federal Reserve was was not just changing asset markets and changing asset prices, but how, how it had really gone down an unprecedented and experimental path. And, you know, at about 8.30 p.m. when I finished this interview with this guy, I thought, you know, this guy's got to be off base. This sounds kind of crazy because I've been a business reporter for years. And I have to admit, I didn't fully appreciate what the Federal Reserve had done. And I didn't fully understand the the mechanisms through which the Fed intervenes in the economy. And, you know, one of the headlines I I took home from that conversation was that in the first century of its existence, the Federal Reserve expanded our monetary supply, uh, the monetary base, that is, to about $900 billion. So one way to put that is, over a century, the Fed slowly and gradually increased the monetary base to $900 billion. But then between 2008 and 2014, the Fed expands it by $3 trillion or, or $3.5 trillion, depending on how you measure it. So that's roughly 300 years worth of money creation in about four and a half years, uh, just a remarkable step change from what had existed before. And, and 
I became obsessed with it, frankly. I mean, I immediately went home and started uh, researching quantitative easing and looking at these policies that the Fed had had in place since 2010, which which truly were, uh, I, you know, I, I'm hesitant to use the word radical, but they were unprecedented and, and un, uh, um, experimental, not just with the quantitative easing and the new money creation, but the fact that interest rates were kept at zero for so long. You know, previously interest rates had brushed up against zero briefly for a time. Interest rates were pegged at zero for roughly seven years during the 2010s. So it it was an effort to really understand that and explain in clear language how it happened and how it affects our world, which uh, started me on reporting this book. Okay, great. Um, And I, one of the, I can't remember whether it was the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, described uh, your writing as doing to this topic as Michael Lewis did to to uh, the short selling. It explains it in both clear language, but in a way that brings individuals to life and makes it interesting. So congratulations. On, that's pretty high praise for being able to articulate a complex topic like this in ways that people can understand. Well, yeah. And I mean, right, every business reporter today is operating in the shadow of Michael Lewis. He's the the greatest that there ever was. And he's a real role model of mine in in the sense of I, I did have a clear vision even that night uh, after interviewing this guy that I wanted to create a short, simple, fast book that would give people a, a workable vocabulary to understand the Fed, understand how it works, understand the mechanics of it and understand why it's so important. I mean, that, that was the goal. I, I really want to talk to that busy person who sees these things happening in the world today and, and you know, wants to understand the underlying forces that are driving it and the mechanics that make it happen. That was really the goal here. Yeah, and it is a extraordinarily important institution that affects the economy in a more uh, complicated but direct way, and also one that's not very, nearly as well understood as other elements. And so, um, Wani, can, before we dive into the, your perspective on what happened, can you just talk to us a little bit about the, for those who are not deep into macroeconomics and what the Federal Reserve does, what their role is and what quantitative easing is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as I say kind of in the book, when I quickly chart the history of the Fed, if if America could live without a central bank, we, we would have done it. Our country was always hesitant to establish a government-run central bank because it's kind of antithetical to the American idea of uh, competitive markets, distributed power. There was this anxiousness about creating a central bank that might displace the private banking system. But that led to real economic chaos in the United States, it's fair to say. I mean, particularly between 1815, I'm sorry, 1850 and 1913, our nation was industrializing, it was growing at this huge scale, but our currency system was an absolute mess. There there were literally thousands of currencies being used in the United States. Uh, It it was a time of periodic bank panics, uh, long bouts of deflation, And there really was actually a popular push to establish a central bank that would create a a national currency. And and that's exactly what the Fed did when it was created in 1913. The, The Fed really was created to do two vitally important jobs. The first was 
to create and manage a national currency. The, the thing we call a dollar is a Federal Reserve note, and, and that's just a vital part of our economy. So along with managing that currency and keeping the currency sound, the Fed was also created to be the so-called lender of last resort that could step in, in in the eventuality of a banking panic. We would have the central bank here that could just print money out of thin air and loan it to banks that were otherwise healthy. So it could staunch uh, banking panics. So that's why we created the Fed. And, and I think it's it's fair to say when you look at it, the central bank has done an overall exceptional job uh, of what it was created to do in, in you know, creating a sound currency for, for many decades. Now, quantitative easing is a recent development that, in my view, really does represent a change at the Fed. And, and here's why I say that. Um, you know, we had the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, just global worldwide uh, panic, uh, devastating financial crisis. The Fed stepped in and didn't, it wasn't just the lender of last resort. It took other extraordinary measures to stop that panic. But then what's very interesting to me is when this book starts on November 3rd, 2010, that's when the Fed launches the real first round of quantitative easing. Now, you know, and others would know, there was one round of quantitative easing in, in the crisis of 0809. But this round in 2010 was different in the sense that this is the Fed stepping in and saying, okay, in an economic recovery outside of a crisis, we are going to be a major engine of economic growth in America. We are going to use our power to create new money. We're going to use that to drive economic growth. And that was very different. That was different from, from what the Fed had done before. And it put the Fed into a much more central position in our economic system. And, you know, I, 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 I shouldn't be coy about it. Obviously, I've come to the conclusion that this policy wasn't overall helpful to the American economy. I mean, the subtitle of the book is how the Fed broke the American economy. And, and I guess I could explain that in one quick way. Like, what is quantitative easing? Well, it is hyper money creation or rampant money creation. And as you know, you know, the Fed's superpower is that it can create dollars out of thin air. That's what makes it so powerful. But it can only do that in a certain way that when the, when the Fed creates new money, it doesn't create it in the bank account of people like me or you or, or anyone. The Fed can only create money inside the bank accounts of these 24 institutions on Wall Street called primary dealers. And, and we can walk through that system. But it's, you know, it's J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, banks like that. These banks have a special license that allow them to do business directly with the Fed. So what the Fed does with quantitative easing is it goes to these primary dealers and it's, it says, hey, J.P. Morgan, we'd like to buy $8 billion worth of treasury bills from you. And so J.P. Morgan sells those bills to the Fed and, and the Fed trader says, OK, look in your special reserve account. Voila, $8 billion just appeared out of thin air. So the Fed repeats that transaction again and again and again until it has pumped, in the case of 2010, you know, $600 billion new dollars into Wall Street. And the goal there is to drive up asset prices, uh, encourage banks to make lo loans, even if the loans are risky, and to try to stoke economic growth by pumping money into the banking system. 
and as you can tell, I think that this was a policy and we can walk through it, but it, it dramatically benefited the, the small group of people who own most of the assets in the United States while doing much, much less or very little for wage earners in the country. Okay, that great. That was a very helpful and short uh, summary of what they do. So take us back to uh, 2008 to this moment when quantitative easing really was the topic of conversation, right? Literally, as you write in the book, the day after the midterm elections in the uh, Obama first term of the Obama administration. So we'd just been through the financial crisis. The Fed had taken unprecedented roles, stepping up with large levels of intervention, but also national or, or converting some investment banks to commercial banks and staying in a very central role. But we were still in the midst of a really slow recovery, right? Exactly. Exactly. A slow, anemic, fragile recovery. Those were terrible, terrible years. Uh, we're, we're talking, um, you know, late 2010. You know, I, I think what's important to remember is that even going, you know, when we were emerging from the financial crisis, it was known that we were going to have to dig out of a very deep hole, that a recovery after a financial crisis is is almost by definition going to be a slow, weak, uh, anemic recovery. You know, Ben Bernanke was chairman of the Federal Reserve at this time, and he'd done studies on this. I think he actually coined the term of the so-called debt overhang, which describes why recoveries are so anemic after a crash. So it, it was known that this was going to be weak, and, and what's so interesting to me, it's almost poetic, the, the time frame in which this book starts. On November 2nd, 2010, you have the first midterm election of Barack Obama's presidency. The Tea Party sweeps into power, takes over the House of Representatives, really driven by this wind of economic discontent, anger, uh, the, you know, the entire Tea Party movement, anger at the so-called rigged system and all the rest of it. But that has the effect of effect effectively shutting down Congress. I mean, you know, Congress conducts what we call fiscal fiscal uh, financial policy. Okay, the Fed does monetary policy, which means managing currency. But Congress and, and democratically controlled institutions like that, they do fiscal policy, taxing, spending, the big stuff, building roads. Uh, empowering labor unions, uh, funding research, all these kind of things that can stimulate economic growth. That's what Congress did. Well, starting in, in you know, 2010, Congress is put to the sidelines and shut down. The Fed, the very next day on November 3rd, launches this program of quantitative easing that I, that I just talked about. And Ben Bernanke in pushing this plan, which he really was the godfather of this. Uh, Bernanke had been studying things like this all the way back, uh, at least as early as the early 2000s. And, and his proposition at the time was, you know, there's a risk to doing nothing. We, we're in this state of weak economic growth. The recovery is fragile. Unemployment is still high. And we, we need to do something. We, we need to act. And the tools that were available were very limited. The Fed had already pushed interest rates to zero, which, again, is an extraordinary state of affairs. 
And Bernanke was, you know, the first chapter of the book is called Going Below Zero, because what Bernanke is saying is we're not just going to keep interest rates at zero. We're going to pump this money into the primary dealers, into the banking system in a way that's never been done before to try to stimulate economic growth. And and what's really remarkable to me when you look back is is, is the level of uncertainty, dissent, and dispute that was going on inside the top levels of the Federal Reserve at the time, with a large group of people saying, you know, this policy, as, as risky and unprecedented, and unprecedented as it is, might get us some short-term gains, which incidentally were relatively small. At the time, we're talking a 0.3% decline in the unemployment rate, meaningful to those people who would otherwise get jobs, but you know, a relatively small short-term gain at the cost of building up very long-term risks. Because again, quantitative easing, it's not just a neutral force. It is not sending uh, checks to average Americans so they can go out and buy cars and, and, and washing machines. It's creating money inside the banks so that they loan, lend, and buy. And what that does is it's a asset price first type policy. It, it's going to drive up the value of stocks, bonds, leveraged loans. And Bernanke's hope was that it would create this sort of secondary wealth effect from those rising asset prices. And there were people inside the Fed saying, you know, this isn't the best plan to stimulate growth. We're going to be building up risks for very little short-term gain. And, and, and that's how this dispute happened at the time in 2010. Now, as you mentioned, um, Bernanke, who was the head of the Federal Reserve, the chair of the Federal Reserve at that point, was a Depression-era scholar. And there's been a lot written about the fact that without appropriate monetary policy at that time, or, or fiscal policy for that matter, pre-World War II, that actually lengthened the Depression. And his mindset was very much, as you articulated in the book, trying to read, he didn't say this, but he didn't want to be the melon of that era. Um, what what happened before and what do you think was driving his mindset? Because he was the one who laid this out in a Jackson Hole set of remarks and then came to the next meeting and 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 uh, proposed it and got the approval. That's exactly right. And Mellon is a great figure. And, and I'm glad you, you brought that up because that was, uh, you know, when you look at all the writing, you look at all the speeches, Ben Bernanke wasn't just a student of, of the Great Depression. He, he was a professor who taught about it. I mean, you know, studied it very closely. And the mistake that was seen as being made at that time was the Federal Reserve kept money too tight. And, and that hindered the, the it, it didn't just make the downturn worse, but it hindered the recovery. And, you know, the point of view is well summarized by the the Secretary of Treasury in 1929, Andrew Mellon, who was this wealthy industrialist. It's kind of an amazing story. It'd be like if Charles Koch was Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, that That's what he was like. And he was, you know, a close advisor to Herbert Hoover. And as Hoover later recounted it, it was Mellon who said, you've got to let this depression burn out. It, it's burning out a lot of rot in the system. And, and he said, you need to liquidate the stocks. You need to liquidate the farmers. You need to let this downturn burn out and let all these bad loans go south. And then we can recover from there. Uh, I think there's universal agreement that melanism is wrongheaded, that when you let that sort of downward spiral gain traction, 
it prolongs downturns and makes things much worse than they would have otherwise been. So Bernanke is saying, I'm going to be the anti-Mellon, if you will. We are going to take, you know, Bernanke's memoir was entitled Courage to Act, The Courage to Act. It was that kind of mentality. Now, the main character of the book is this Fed official named Thomas Honig, who was the president of the Kansas City Federal Reserve in Kansas City in 2010, not coincidentally, he was the longest serving Fed member uh, on the, the Fed's top policy committee at that time. And, and the top policy committee is the Federal Open Markets Committee, or FOMC. It, it's this group of 12 voting members who make these key decisions about what the Fed ought to do. And Thomas Honig was, was best remembered as being the, quote, dissenter, the sort of very cranky, uh, hard money hawk, and, and frankly, kind of an ultra melanist. Who, who was arguing that the Fed needed to kind of sit on its hands and not act. And Honig voted, you know, as I say, if you tallied his votes from 2010, his votes were no, 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 no. He, he dissented all the way along. And in, in Bernanke's memoir, Bernanke really saved some of his very, very few barbs for Honig as this sort of cantankerous, stubborn figure. And, and that's how I came across Tom Honig is when I researched quantitative easing, I saw the vote to do it was 11 against one. And so it got me very curious in this guy who voted against it. And, you know, the, the honest truth is I was really shocked when I went through and read the actual debates and, and the public statements and the speeches at the time, because Tom Honig wasn't making a Melanist argument. When, when the bullets were flying and the crisis was in full conflagration and everything was falling apart in 0809, Honig voted yes every single time. And, and he's a big believer in the Fed's role of being a lender of last resort. What he was arguing in 2010, the reason he stood against this policy of quantitative easing, was a very different argument from Melanism. He was saying... If we do this, if we go below the zero rate, if we pump this money into the banking system, which creates kind of a semi-permanent easy money policy, okay, now it's no longer just lowering and raising interest rates. Now you're injecting these excess cash reserves into the banking system. If we do this, Hanag argued, we're going to be doing three really negative things. We're going to be allocating money toward the very rich of the rich because, you know, 1% of the population owns roughly 40% of the assets. So when you're driving up asset prices to boost growth, you're, you're dramatically enriching the top 1%. The second thing he argued is that we are going to encourage a massive upswell in, in not just risky lending, but it, in, in debt, in dangerous debt, in cheap debt. And then finally, he said, once we start doing this, we're not going to be able to stop. There's not going to be an end point to this program, and you're going to have pressure on you to continue pumping money into the banking system. And we're going to delay that day when the economy is able to grow without an inflow of easy money. And, and I argue, looking at the evidence over the last decade, that, that Honig was exactly right on all three of those points. But of course, he lost every vote uh, in the year 2010 and, and retired from the Fed, mostly remembered as a dissenter. So as you said, in your um research and depiction of the story. He's not the anti-hero, he's the hero of uh, being able to say no to something that, that in your view was inappropriate. So um, how does he view and how is he viewed today? We're a decade past that time. 
um, in terms of was he prescient? Was he, um, you know, stubborn inappropriately? What what what's the view of of him today? Well, this is a big reason I, I wrote the book is I really did get fascinated with this guy, uh, in, in in part because I feel like he embodies a certain kind of of political thought in America that is, is largely dead. I would call it, these are my words, not his words. I would call it the kind of pragmatic Eisenhower Republican, uh, someone who believes in, you know, the power of capitalism, but managed capitalism, you know, uh, the New Deal era from 19, let's say 1938 to about 1980 is, is the time when, you know, banks were broken apart. We, we put a lot of emphasis on regulating Wall Street and all the rest of it. So, I, you know, I don't mean to digress, but your question is, how's Honig remembered? When I started writing this book, uh, I remember asking people I knew in the field about this guy, Honig, before I interviewed him. And, and I have to say, he was largely seen as a crank. And, and the story that kind of solidified around him was that he was a guy who was obsessed with the specter of price inflation, now, this is a critical thing we'll talk about, but you've got really two kinds of inflation. One is the inflation of prices that we're all familiar with, gasoline, bread, television. That's consumer price inflation. But there's another kind of inflation called asset price inflation. That's when stock markets rise quickly. Corporate bond markets are asset home prices. Those are a That's asset inflation when those prices rise. Uh, you know, Honig was remembered as a guy who'd been warning repeatedly that if we did quantitative easing, we would see price inflation run out of control, hyperinflation, Weimar Republic type. And I remember, you know, a guy at the American Enterprise Institute told me Honig was wrong and, and, the, and a liberal uh, financial journalist uh, told me that Honig was wrong because he'd been warning about inflation. And critically, over the last decade, we never saw significant or sustained price inflation. But what I point out in the book is when I went back and read the debates and I read the speeches and I read what Honig actually warned about, it was asset price inflation. It was financial instability. It was what he calls, quote, allocative effects, which is the growing divide between rich and poor. And I'll never forget, it was a Saturday morning at about 8.30 a.m. And I was reading an interview Honig had given around this time in 2010. And he was warning explicitly about asset bubbles and financial volatility, not price inflation. I called him at home and I said, you were not talking about price inflation. You were talking about asset bubbles. And he just replied, yeah, I know. I, I know that. I know that's what I argued, you know. And, and so to me, it was a story of, well, you know, the New York Times review put it as I spent a large part of the book trying to rehabilitate Thomas Honig's uh, reputation and I think that's a good way to put it. That's accurate. I think this guy made a lot of really good points, and we would have been better off if we had followed more of his point of view at the time. Okay, so take us through the, the logic flow of how that actually works and why you think that's the case. So the Fed, through quantitative easing, was buying longer-term, uh, put, putting money into longer-term assets that inflated you know, the money just doesn't sit there. So what happens? How does this actually work? Yes, thank you. Great question. Okay, so so Thomas Honig loses his fight and he kind of goes off to the sidelines, although he comes back as a bank regulator, interestingly, later. But, okay, 
then we talk about what happens. What does quantitative easing look like? What does the decade from 2010 to early 2020 look like? Uh, what, what did the Fed's programs do and how did they change the world? And, and I do need to kind of add that round of quantitative easing that, that Honig voted against in 2010 was just the beginning. Uh, he was right. The Fed did find itself more committed to this uh, line of, of easy money. Uh, in 2012, uh, they went back to the well uh, at Bernanke's urging. They initiated another much, much larger round of quantitative easing called QE3 or QE infinity, as the Wall Street types called it. Uh, 1.65 trillion uh, in that round compared to 600 billion that Honig had voted against. So what did it do? Uh, why do I say it was negative? You know, how, how could I dare argue that it broke the economy? You know, again, one benefit of being a reporter is you really get to talk to people who live in different worlds and, and kind of occupy different silos. And I've, I've been really lucky in, in this case to get to talk to people inside the Fed the economists, the board of governors, the people on the FOMC. And they're kind of what I call one sphere of, of thinking about this, which is, you know, more uh, theoretical based on the models and based on how things ought to work economically. But then you've got this whole other sphere of people who operate in the wake of what the Fed is doing. Okay. This would be our Wall Street types. This would be the people that are running um, private equity firms like Carlyle Group, it would be people running hedge funds, it would be people working at the big banks like Credit Suisse. And I think it's very instructive to look at how quantitative easing and 0% interest rates affected those people and that world. Um, I'm going to refer to these policies now as simply ZERP, which is Wall Street shorthand for this stuff. And it's zero interest rate policy or ZERP, which refers to keeping interest rates pegged at zero while at the same time pumping quantitative easing cash into the banking system. And I try to tell this story in the book from the point of view of, of a hedge fund. So let's look at what the Fed did. As you said, the Fed targeted long-term rates, which sounds kind of complicated, but what, when they bought these bills, when they injected this money into the system through the primary dealers, the Fed was very intentionally buying long-term dated treasury bills. And, and that's very important because these long-term dated bills, like a 10-year treasury, I, I describe them as being like Wall Street's savings account. Okay, when long-term rates are, let's say, 35 or 4%, which is quite historically normal, if I'm running a hedge fund, I can essentially store my money for 4% pretty safely in a 10-year treasury bond. But... If the Fed is buying those bonds and drawing down the yield on, on that savings account, well, heck, I, I can't do much there. I can't earn much if, you know, it's one and a half percent. So that's creating this overarching effect that we call a search for yield. They, they can't save the money as much anymore. And at the same time, there's a lot more money in the system. Excess bank reserves increase by thousands of percentage points during this period, just huge levels of excess cash in the banking system. So the hedge funds now are looking to invest it anywhere they can. So, uh, you know, we're familiar with the dynamics of, of the housing boom of the 2000s, when you had banks willing to lend to people based on really shoddy loan applications and sketchy information. 
a very similar dynamic played out here. Um, you know, big market I focus on is is how the Fed's ZERP policies pushed billions of dollars into the corporate, I'm sorry, trillions of dollars into the corporate debt markets. That was real focus of what I wrote about. And and in the same way you had irresponsible home homeowners in, in the 2000s, uh, in the 2010s, you know, you had uh, these companies borrowing junk debt and leveraged loans. Uh, you know, fracking is a great example of this. These highly over-optimistic wildcat frackers in North Dakota and Texas were coming into these hedge funds with these wildly optimistic projections, uh, but they were still getting lent the money. And, and you see this uh, again and again across industries that search for yield was pushing all this cash into risk assets. It drives up the prices of those assets as the Fed knew it would do. Okay, so we're seeing an upswell in the price of these markets for stocks, for for leveraged loans, for corporate bonds, uh, for these securitized forms of leveraged loans called collateralized loan obligations. These markets are super hot and they're being stoked by the Fed. That's what's happening with ZERP. What does it mean for wage earners in America? Uh, not much. Uh, not much benefit comes from that. And, you know, during this decade of the ZERP policies, uh, asset prices were on a tear. Uh, you know, uh, S&P uh, more than doubled during that period. At the same time, overall economic growth was weak. Productivity growth was anemic. Wages were stagnant uh, for the entire decade and the decade even preceding that. So the, these benefits didn't really go to the working class. And in many ways, damage them. I mean, there, there's a, you know, a profile in the book of this company that I think is emblematic of what we saw, whereby the corporate leadership team is using this cheap debt through ZERP to issue new junk debt, to borrow money to do share buybacks, which also hit record levels over the last decade. Uh, you know, the people in the C-suite were earning millions of dollars. The company was getting loaded down with debt. And, you know, the, the consequences were predictable. You see jobs cut, you see uh, more production shifted offshore, and, and it's sort of the same story for this middle class that's tre- treading water. So, so to me, those are the dynamics of, of what this program looked like. And, and you know, I, I didn't even address yet the sort of systemic risk that's being built up the entire time, because when you have asset prices these high, this high, it creates fragilities, fragility in the marketplace. Okay, a helpful, helpful uh, way to describe that. So we're now a decade past the story that you started, actually 12 years past 2010. Yes. One other huge disruption in the world, obviously, uh, from an economic standpoint, from COVID and another big Federal Reserve response to that. And we still have, by your depiction, pretty inflated asset prices in a number of categories. Um, Where are we now? I mean, is this, are we still in the risk that you're articulating? Uh, Did the response to COVID make this worse? Kind of where are we now? It it did. And um, again, you know, I wandered into this book, honestly, but I got to tell you, I've come to a very pessimistic place I think we're in, well, I mean, it's not just me. We are, we are in an extraordinarily fragile position. And I think that the decade of ZERP policy helps explain why. And, and, and you know, let me explain that. First of all, there's a really important part of the book 
that talks about what happened between 2016 and late 2019, before there was ever a case of COVID, the Fed was really trying to pull back on these policies because, you know, the current chairman, Jay Powell, knew better than anybody, or at least argued more starkly than anybody inside the Fed meetings, that the Fed was stoking these asset bubbles that would be dangerous because, unfortunately, if the price of an asset is not supported by the asset's real value, you're going to have a correction. And what Powell was saying was, hey, folks, we're not getting much gain in the short term, and we are piling up long-term risks in the corporate debt markets, stock markets, you name it. These prices are eventually going to crash, and we're not going to be able to deal with the damage. So we've got to pull back. The Fed tried to pull back between 2016 and late 2019. And every time the Fed tried to raise interest rates or withdraw some of this quantitative easing cash, the markets reacted negatively. But I kind of point out the markets also reacted rationally. You know, I just described how the Fed created a reach for yield. Well, once you let interest rates start to rise again, you, you change the math equation. And, and now the investors can pull that money out of the risk assets and put it back into safer assets. And that's what happened time and again as the Fed tried to normalize. And the Fed really never was able to normalize. It's kind of an amazing story that by the time COVID hits, the Fed was just deeply enmeshed in this QE, quantitative easy, easy money uh, program it had created. Uh, you know, I talk about this mini meltdown that occurred in September 2019. The Fed had to pump $400 billion back into the system just to keep things running. And then we have the COVID crash. Now, there's no question at all that COVID is an unprecedented economic calamity. The world has never seen anything like this before. E even when the pandemic of 1918 happened with the influenza, you know, we didn't live in nearly such a large scale, globally interconnected, industrialized society. To have the kind of massive interconnected society we have today that shuts down almost overnight and then tries to restart is an economic calamity. Okay. And, and that's a real thing. But what I argue in the book is that these Fed policies of the 2010s made it from a calamity into a, an acute financial crisis in March 2020. We had a, a financial market crash in March 2020 that was worse than the crash of 2008. It, it, it's just that the Fed short-circuited it very quickly. But in, in mid-March of 2020, Literally, the, the market for U.S. Treasury bills froze. The Financial Times put it really well when they said, analysts said such things weren't supposed to be possible. But it happened. It was shocking and terrifying. Uh, we had a financial panic ensuing. And the reason why is that the COVID crisis collided with a financial market that was you know, what the trader types call priced to perfection with these huge pools of risk assets, like this corporate debt I keep mentioning, like, like uh, tech stock prices, like commercial mortgage-backed securities, like these corporate borrowers that were on the hook for very expensive junk debt payments and that were obligated to constantly resell their junk debt in the markets, which they call rolling debt. 
This was a fragile, vulnerable system, and it essentially collapsed in March of 2020. And so then the Fed had to step in and quintuple down on its on its previous strategy. You know, I said that between 08 and 14, the Fed printed 300 years of money. Well, in a few months of the spring of 2020, the Fed printed 300 years worth of money in that time, you know, $3 trillion. And, and not only did the Fed pump unprecedented amounts of new money into the system to keep it afloat, the Fed expanded its footprint in, in critically important ways. It went out and directly bought that corporate junk debt that was posing such a systemic risk. That's a big expansion of the Fed's safety net. So the Fed essentially stepped in in March 2020, bailed out the financial markets, bailed out asset holders uh, to 100%. I mean, you know, asset holders were made whole in a matter of months after the crash of, of March 2020, thanks to what the Fed is doing. But that leaves us in this very precarious state today where the reckoning still hasn't happened in asset markets. Asset markets weren't just bailed out in 2020. They've actually gone on record-breaking tears ever since then. Uh, corporate debt stocks breaking records every day. And, and this would all be fine if the Fed was given the luxury of time. You know, if, if the Fed could maybe patiently unwind these policies over five to 10 years, we might be OK. You know, the dispute that starts the book in 2010 happened at a time when the Fed held one trillion dollars on its balance sheet, which was a pretty remarkable. I, I, I apologize for that. The Fed held roughly uh, two trillion dollars at that time, which was really high. And then it hit a high of four and a half trillion in the middle of the decade. You know, now it's at eight north of $8 trillion. This is a huge, huge amount of, of money that the Fed is going to have to unwind if it ever wants to tighten monetary policy. And, and again, it would be fine if the Fed had the luxury of time, if it could do this slowly, gradually over five years, seven years, 10 years. But very unfortunately, we'll probably talk about this, but the, the, the rampant price inflation that we're seeing today is probably going to force the Fed's hand, and it's going to force the Fed to tighten much more quickly than it wants. In, in which case, we'll see the you know predictable reaction we see time and time again, which is, you know, to put it politely, a downward correction in asset prices, or you know, if it goes too far, a financial market crash. Okay, just a reminder that we're talking with Chris Leonard about his book, "The Lords of Easy Money: How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy," and we'll also be. Uh, taking your questions as as we uh, have the remaining time here. So if you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube and we'll start to work those in. So let me ask you, continuing what you just said. So um, we're now in an environment, as you said, where we had uh, in the last 12 months inflation levels that were really high by recent standards and basic belief that the Fed is starting to signal that it is gonna be pulling back in the next while here, raising rates or pulling back some of its stimulus on the economy. So so how does this end? What happens? You know, what's, what's well, your view of what the next while there looks like? We're in the middle of the story, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, inflation is the key right now, obviously, but it's not necessarily for all the reasons you might hear on, on, on cable news. What, what's really interesting to me is that 
the previous decade, this decade of ZERP I keep talking about, was defined not by hot price inflation, but by a deflationary environment. Um, the Fed kept consistently missing its forecasts of inflation, and it kept undershooting it. You know, the Fed kept expecting inflation to hit 2% or maybe even higher, and it just never happened. The reasons for that remain a great mystery. I think we have enough evidence now to probably confidently point to a globalization as, as a key part of that. You know, the global supply chains, the global labor pool helped suppress prices. And I don't think it's coincidental that it, it was the disruption of that supply chain that's really finally fueling the, the price inflation. Regardless of the causes, now price inflation is, is running at the hottest level since the early 1980s. And it's pretty much, I think, universally recognized you just can't let that kind of price inflation just go un unchecked because it can turn into an inflationary spiral where people then expect more inflation and therefore they raise prices and on and on it goes. Very destabilizing uh, and, and very punishing for working people if wages aren't keeping up with the price inflation, which it doesn't tend to do and it's certainly not doing right now. Okay, so So the Fed has to step in and act. But the only tools the Fed can use to to hold down inflation, it, the only tool available is to tighten the money supply. That means withdrawing this extraordinary cash through quantitative easing. And then it means hiking interest rates up from zero, which, you know, we haven't seen rates higher than two and a half percent in over a decade. I mean, for most of the 2010s, rates were at zero the Fed managed to get them up to two and a half percent, still an extraordinarily low rate, uh, and then plunged back to zero uh, during the COVID crisis. They even started cutting before COVID hit, incidentally. So here's where it leaves us. Here's why I get uh, an anxious pit in my stomach when I read about uh, treasury markets right now, which sounds like kind of a you know obscure topic, but but the fact is. Yields on long-term bonds are starting to rise again. Uh, they're up at 1.8% uh, today, which is the highest level in two years. And that's going to start to change that risk equation that we've been talking about. And you're going to start to see, and you're seeing today, the, literally today, the capital's flowing out of, of those risk assets, uh, tech stocks, CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, the money flows away from that as, as the calculus starts to change. And, and I think the Fed understands that they're in a terrible vice. To solve the problem of price inflation will create another problem of a downward wrenching adjustment in asset markets. And, and the, you know, of, of course, that's going to mean losses for the relatively small group of people that own most of the assets. But of course, in the world we live in, you know, carnage in financial markets gets transmitted pretty quickly back to the real economy. Companies see what's happening. They start cutting jobs again. You can see uh, demand fall when that happens, and it can create a lot of economic chaos. So um, how the story ends um, I have no clue. Uh, what I can absolutely confidently report is that the Fed has been patiently and assiduously pumping up these asset prices for years. We have highly inflated prices in these markets that are going to be hurt if the Fed raises rates. 
and the Fed is being forced to raise rates. So it's sort of a buckle up type scenario. And, and, and to me, it's just really important that, you know, people have a good grasp of, of what's going on to kind of prepare for the economic volatility we might see. It, it's not coming out of nowhere. Uh, the roots have, have been planted and this problem has been growing under Republican and Democratic administrations for many years. Okay. So um, in your reporting on this, you're obviously shining a light on how the Federal Reserve actually works and its effect on the economy. And there are a lot of conspiracy theories around about who really owns or runs the Fed. Um, why do you think that is? Is it because of how opaque the institution is or how they make decisions? Why, why do people have that question or concern? That's a great uh, question. And it's, it, it, you know, it's embarrassing to me as a reporter. I've, I've gotten that question, who owns the Fed? And, you know, my understanding is uh, it's a very complicated system, but it's basically like banks own the regional banks with non-convertible stock. And it's kind of a, a jerry-rigged, complicated system. You know, I, I just like to say as a reporter, I fly pretty close to the ground. My, my job is to talk about the policies how they influenced the world, what the arguments were, who won, who lost, uh, and, and that kind of picture. I think the, the deep skepticism, which is a very close cousin of the real rampant conspiracy theories out there about the Fed, I think it traces back to, to the structure uh, of the central bank. It, it was built to be insulated from the will of the voters and from democratic pressures. That was one of the key ideas. It's kind of like an administrative agency because the thinking was we can't give this power to politicians who are going to be operating on short-term incentives. The, the, the seduction of the money printing press is too great because when you, when you turn to the printing press to create prosperity – you're avoiding those hard decisions of taxing and spending and all these big debates that can be had. And so that's why power was vested into this administrative body and really a voting committee of 12 people, the FOMC, but then really the chair, the chairperson of the Fed has tremendous control over the FOMC. So that's just, that is just a tremendous amount of concentrated power which, you know, the Fed meets in secret. Um, I've been dinged for saying these decisions are made in secret, but they are, and, and the transcripts are released after a five-year delay. And I think it's important that the decisions are actually made behind closed doors because there's a wide disparity. There has been a wide disparity between what Fed officials say publicly and then what's said inside the FOMC meetings. Uh, and I could walk through that. But so it, it's, it's the secrecy of how the Fed operates it's the power that's vested in these 12 people. And, and I think that the tension is exacerbated as the Fed's footprint grows larger and larger and larger, and its role becomes more and more and more important, which is what we're seeing today. So I think that that accounts for it. You know, geez, there is just this, well, I'll tell you what, the, the main character in the book, Tom Honig, comes back to D.C. in 2012 as the vice chairman for the FDIC, key bank regulator, and he gives these speeches. And again, this is a conservative guy, and he's arguing that we need to break up the big banks, like kind of like even more extreme than Elizabeth Warren in many ways. 
And the argument he makes is that when the population sees these the biggest of the big banks and the richest of the rich Americans getting bailed out after each crisis, it corrodes trust in our institutions. And, and, and people feel a lack of trust. There's growing cynicism. You know, it's just a cliche at this point to say the system is rigged, but people really feel that way. And that feeds into this, you know, on, on the retail level, this lack of trust, the cynicism, this feeling of like you're kind of the, the sucker at the table that, uh, at the retail level that turns into conspiracy theory, in my view. You know, that's it, it feeds into distrust. OK. Um, <clears throat> there's a, an, an alternative view about what monetary policy should be in the environment that we're in now called modern monetary theory. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, um, it's 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 a fascinating school of thought. And, and I do want to say I'm not an expert in it, which, you know, you I could be criticized for. Again, I want to go back to that image. I, I tried to fly really close to the ground about what happened, how the decisions were made and what it did over the last decade. Now, during that time, this school of thought developed called modern monetary theory. And, you know, I to me, the. I hate to try to reduce it to a bumper sticker, but I think it would be this idea that deficits don't matter nearly as much as, as like deficit hawks want to say that they do. And, and the way I've heard it put is that um, if if we can do it, we can afford to do it. And, and it's this idea that um, I think the federal government can simply issue treasury bonds and the Federal Reserve can print money to buy those bonds and you can fund government activity in this way. And, uh, it, you know, you're kind of breaking free of the constraints of budget deficits or uh, budgeting. Now, I'm kind of chagrined to talk about this because I feel like an expert in monetary, modern, modern monetary theory might say I'm getting it wrong. Um, here's, here's what I would add. Um, and, you know, I don't consider myself like some gold standard monetary hawk by, by any means. And I'm actually, you know, in my past work, I'm quite a large advocate of, of, of a robust federal government. I believe in a, a safety net. I believe in, you know, managed capitalism, regulating monopolies and all the rest of it. But there is kind of this reality that treasury bills are a product that, that we go out to the market and sell. And, and right now, there's no bottom to the appetite for that product. In, in other words, we always have a buyer for Treasury bills. The price is always very low. Right now, the Federal Reserve is buying a huge portion of new Treasury bills with, with newly printed money. If we ever cross a, a red line whereby we sort of uh, oversaturate the market with our debt and 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 we are forced to pay a higher interest rate for it. Uh, that's all anybody's ever going to be talking about when it happens, because it's going to mean that the price of our debt is rising outside of our control, which is just going to have a huge cascading backward effect onto the ability of our government to be effective. And, and I think that's a day we don't ever want to see. We don't know where that red line is. It might be, uh, and for, it, it might never happen. I mean, there's so many advantages we have as being the global reserve currency, uh, and, and such a trustworthy borrower as the United States, we might never hit the red line. But I, I do feel like we're just determined to find it. We are just determined 
to get to that point where the market has had its fill of U.S. Treasury debt. And I, I'm thinking right now what I point out in the book is, you know, the tax cuts of, of you know, 2017 and 2018, I believe, led us to this position in 2019 when uh, we were operating at $1 trillion deficits every year. And that's when things were really good. That's when the economy was growing as much as, much as it's going to grow for quite a long time. So, you know, I think it's unstable and I, I think it's probably unsustainable to, to operate at deficits at that level. Okay. Um, <clears throat> while I don't want you to have a uh, force to be put a crystal ball in front of you, um, 2022 is going to be an interesting year from a monetary policy standpoint for some of the reasons we talked about earlier, as well as politically, because we're heading into a midterm election again. Um, what are the things that you're you're looking out for to see whether the Fed can actually navigate its way through this or things that would give you a sense that, you know, the, all those concerns that you and others have had about this are something we want to really be watching? What, do, what are you looking at? What's your kind of early indicators? Well, uh, you know, one indicator. OK, there's a tug of war going on right now. Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve are promising that they are going to raise rates to fight inflation. They say they're going to raise rates north of 2% this year. They're going to stop pumping money into the system through quantitative easing. Uh, they're going to stop those purchases. Uh, up until now, Wall Street has largely not believed the Fed. Uh, you know, the Fed was saying it's going to raise interest rates about 2.5%, and the market was pricing in 1.5%. So you see this tug of war happening. And, and, and to be honest, I think the market has good reason to doubt the Fed because every time the Fed has tried to tighten in the past, when the rubber really hits the road, the Fed pulls back. You know, I'm sure you remember the very famous Powell pivot from early 2019. Markets started to turn down in a synchronized way and Powell retreated. So early indicators I'm looking at, to me, the big story of 2022 is not only is the Fed going to tighten, does the Fed have the capability to tighten? Okay. This year, are we going to see a tightening of monetary supply and the almost inevitable downward adjustment in asset prices that that'll create? Or are we going to see a halting back and forth? Uh, they start to raise rates, markets react, the Fed puts out, you know, calming language they they eventually uh, drop rates again or or pause. That's going to be the tug of war happening. Is the Fed going to actually go through with this or not? They haven't gone through with it in a significant way uh, over the last decade. So, you know, to me, when I look at what's happening literally today, the headline is stock markets plunge, yield prices rise. That's the change of the seesaw we're talking about. Uh, how how dramatic is the change going to be is, is the question. And, and then, you know, the huge question mark out there is how, how durable and how intense is this price inflation going to be? I, I think if the Fed could dodge this uh, vice and, and not have to tighten, they sure would. So would we see inflation stop? I mean, that would be maybe a best case scenario. Okay. Um, Certainly going to be interesting to watch as many 
uncertainties around inflation as there are on asset prices, uh, as you said. So we're unfortunate at that moment where we're down to our last question, and I really wish we could continue this conversation. Thank you for spending the time with us. My um, pleasure. But um, the last question I was going to ask you is we talked a little bit before that I, you and I both had the pleasure of reading a, another great book on monetary history in prior times called The Lords of Finance, a Pulitzer Prize winning book, I believe, or be quite yeah. a lot, described what monetary policy leaders were doing in the Great Depression. And one of the things that I took away from that book was, man, these are challenging times. Every time's different than the past, and they're making it up and hoping it works. So if we could go back, and I don't want you to be a Monday morning quarterback, put yourself back in the beginning of your book in 2010, knowing now, knowing what you know now then, what would you advise the Fed to do differently? Uh, great question. And I also have to hate that, that uh Lords of Finance is, is such a great book, and I feel bad that the title of my book is derivative of it, The Lords of Easy Money. Uh, the book was originally entitled The Long Crash, which sort of explains the arc of the last decade, I think, but that was, you know, that didn't end up being the title. So, um, you know, all apologies uh, on that front. It, it was such a great book, and uh, sure is easy for reporters like me to, to carp from the sidelines. Uh, so, you know, what would I have done? Um, I, I think it, at, at this time, I've got to throw my lot in with the Thomas Honig point of view. What he was advocating in 2010 was not some kind of wild interest rate hike based on this ideology that we need to have a gold standard or hard money. He was saying, he was saying essentially Show some restraint. Let's leave rates hyper low where they are and try to gradually, slowly, predictably, incrementally raise them bit by bit until they're maybe as high as 1% and then stop again and let markets react. I don't want to overstretch this analogy, but honestly, to me, it feels very similar to this idea that in Afghanistan, we should have displayed restraint and negotiated with the enemy, the Taliban, in, in late 2002. And again, these aren't comparable fields, warfare versus central banking, but it's this idea of displaying some level of restraint and, and not trying to get seduced into this thing of always showing kinetic action so you can show you know, what you've done today and that you know we're on the march and, and all this stuff. Um, so I would have... I would have advocated for what Tom Honig advocated for, which was letting the economy develop without this supercharged flow of new cash into Wall Street. Okay, terrific. Well, thank you and um, encourage everyone to take a look and pick up the Lords of Easy Money, how the Federal Reserve broke the American economy, in addition to being a very interesting read about economic policy. It's a terrific read of of individuals and characters and, and written in a way that 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 and a casual observer can understand as opposed to someone who's deep in all these topics. So thank you for taking us through that, Chris. And I really appreciate you joining us today and discussing your new book, as you said, The Lords of Easy Money. We'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating with us live. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. Again, I'm Lenny Mendoza. Thank you. Stay safe and healthy. And thanks again, Chris. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.